Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. And welcome <laughs> to Liars Lee, where writers write, actors read, audience listen. Correct. And everybody wins. I am your host for this evening. My name's Katie Darby. Uh, I am usually behind the camera because I'm shy and retiring. <laughs> but very occasionally, I can be forced to drag some old rag out of my closet, put on a bit of slap, and get in front of the lights. Uh, so tonight's event is Women and Girls. Today, we have a sensational lineup of women and girls for your viewing pleasure, which makes me sound a little bit like a brothel madam, but we're gonna go with it. Six brand new stories written by six talented authors, read by six brilliant actors, all of whom happen to be female. There are Victorian prisoners and horny ventriloquists. There are cult members and spiritual healers. There are even superheroines in sensible shoes. And of course, to complement this feast of fiction, this veritable orgy, of estrogen, we also have the downright notorious Liars League book quiz, where you can win some fantastic books by female authors with female protagonists, hashtag read women, um, and they are all available to be won if you are clever enough. But before we dive headlong into the stories, just one thing. If you're using your phone to take photos, please do. Take pictures, tweet ideally at the interval, um, and tell everyone how fantastic it is. But it must be turned to silent, because there is nothing a lady hates more than being interrupted. And on that note, I will introduce our first story of the evening. Our first story is Finding Jezza by Sally Lane, and it will be read by Nikki Diss. Sally Lane grew up both in the suburbs of London and the Canadian outback, the contrast of which has probably given her a skewed outlook on life. She studied history and French at the University of Western Ontario before rooting herself in an English university town where she's currently a historical custodian. Nikki Diss is co-founder of Open Book Theatre, who performed free theatrical adaptations of classic literature in London's libraries. She's also the artistic director of Open Bar Theatre, who tours Shakespeare to Fuller's Pub Gardens throughout the summer. She regularly reads audiobooks and recently recorded Enid Blyton's St. Clair's Stories. <laughs> Some sentimental enjoyment of that. Uh, Nikki, welcome to the stage. <laughs> unexpectedly at 2pm, I was still wearing my Bayer Tapestry bathrobe. While I was explaining to her the origin of its name, that is, each stain or object recounted an episode in the last few months, a gravy blob from a TV dinner, for instance, or the encrusted cornflake from a late-night snack, she interrupted me. When was the last time I'd had a conversation with anyone? she asked. 
I had to think about that. Did the bin men count? I said. My guess is, it was this encounter that prompted her to send me the book that arrived a few days later. Seeking Enlighten Enlightenment, Finding Jesus was its title. Sonia thinks that Jesus can solve anything, even gravy blobs and encrusted cornflakes. I have nothing against Jesus. In fact, in my youth, before I got distracted by field sports and boys, he and I were on fairly intimate terms. It was just that now I was officially an adult, we had drifted some distance apart. In any case, I didn't open the book. It lay, still shiny, like an unexploded missile on my kitchen table. Gradually, it got shuffled around and then buried under court appearance notices and bailiff threats. When Sonia phoned to ask if I was enjoying it, I lied and said it was good for my spiritual journey. She seemed satisfied with that and left me alone for a bit. But then, strange things began to happen. The washing machine, for one. It started to whoosh like a desert storm, and then wee like a cry for help in the wilderness. And I could see it was trying to tell me something. And then my TV, phone, and digital clock all began to show only identically paired numbers, like 1818, or even palindrome numbers, like 2112. I tried to catch the numbers out by peering sideways at my digital screens at odd moments. But they always won by appearing deceptively normal until another significant number poked through. I didn't know if Jesus was trying to contact me, but I didn't want to take any chances. I covered all my electronic items with tea towels and then hid on for two days under the blankets. It was on the third day that Jesus appeared to me. By chance that morning, I'd adjusted the dial on my toaster, and lo and behold, there it was on my slice of toast. The unmistakable profile of the Galilean, outlined in chestnut-coloured crumbs, complete with beard and fingertips raised in prayer. Feverishly, I dressed and headed into town, certain only that I had to do something about the powerful fluttering in my chest that was like a bird struggling to be set free. It was at a stall on the high street that I saw him. Tall, spectrally thin in a long white robe and with the kindest brown eyes I had ever seen. In front of him, a fold-up table, on a fold-up table were sky blue leaflets, which spoke promisingly to the bird trapped within me. I can barely recall our conversation now, suffused as it was in a soft, warm glow. All that remains is a series of mental snapshots, the honey of his voice, the delicacy of his fingers as he handed me a pen to sign up for a taster weekend in Shropshire, rolling hills, glassy lakes, everything provided, and a digital detox, so no phones or tablets. As I shut my front door with a definitive click, my final look at these last-mentioned items, still shrouded in their stripy tea towels, wasn't even wistful. Shropshire turned out to be one of the rainier counties. When it rains, like now, the view outside the kitchen window is a whitewash, 
The edges of the sheep blend into the edges of the hedgerows, which in turn fuse with the fuzzy mass of the brick, high brick inner wall and the steel gate beyond. Sometimes I joke to myself that if Jesus tried to reveal himself now, he would disappear amidst all that blurriness. <coughs> the reason I joke to myself is that the other sister wives don't have much of a sense of humour, <laughs> particularly Josie, the newest and youngest, who earnestly explains everything to me with a Bible verse. This morning she quoted Matthew, saying that the one who endures to the end will be saved, and I briefly pictured tugging hard on one of her silly Midwestern pigtails, but instead I smiled sweetly and asked if she wanted more toast. The mention of an extra slice turned out to be a mistake, as Dorothy, the most motherly, loves my Galilean on toast story and gets me to repeat it at the slightest excuse. Josie, of course, wanted to hear it, and when I got to the beard part, she coloured a little. The other wives and I turned away decorously. We knew from the sounds emanating from Jezza's room last night that Josie, too, had now experienced the delights of our husband's full and bushy beard that he uses to titillate the pink buds of each of his nubile initiates. Today, Jezza is in town with practically-minded Maureen, who has been enlisted to buy the monthly products that we sister-wives require. All of us, apart from Josie, who is still too new, have synchronised Another reason, I suppose, for Jezza's need to continually supply himself with a fresh crop of female recruits. At least, when he's away, the left-behind wives seem to yield a little, not making such a show, for instance, of standing on chairs to dust in the hard-to-reach corners. Today is also the day I have allocated for the preparation of my plan. After Josie has finished clapping her little hands at my toast story, I casually ask Dorothy if there are any binoculars in the house. I have spied a bird-watching guide on the living room shelf, I explain, and am keen to indulge my former hobby. At first, Dorothy hesitates, knowing she should ask Jezza's permission first. But then, when I flutter her by saying she, of all people, knows every inch of our godly abode, she relents and says there is a pear in the attic. After I've dried the breakfast dishes, left the bread to prove, scattered corn for the chickens, and fed the biomass boiler in the courtyard, I'm ready. I know today is an auspicious day, since when I look at the kitchen clock, it's quarter past three, which in my former digital life denoted a highly significant 15-15. I install myself in the upstairs window and look out. The mist has thinned, and it's possible to discern the pale stretch of the path curving towards the padlocked wooden gate in the inner wall, which is taller than the height of two average-sized people and one small one standing on each other's shoulders. And then the darker bars of the outer steel gate, 20 yards beyond. I keep watching. A small brown bird flits from the top of the birch tree to the hedgerow opposite, and is followed, close behind, by a similar small brown bird. I lied to Dorothy this morning, of course. I am no bird watcher, and I'm incapable of telling the difference between a chaffinch and a blue tit. It is something else, 
someone else I am searching for. Like the feathered creatures I am ostensibly here to watch, he or she will be identifiable by a flash of colour, a bold neon orange, most likely. If I wait long enough, I know that it will appear like a sudden flare in the monochrome landscape, a bright beacon indicative of a world beyond the hedgerow, beyond the wall, and beyond the implacable steel gate. <laughs> An hour or so later, personal items forbidden to us include watches. Josie comes into the room, ready to chat. I want to scream at her, particularly when she goes over to the window, blocking the view. As she asks me what I have spotted, I see over her left shoulder a vivid neon orange flash beyond the outer, ga outer gate. Ignoring Josie's bewildered cry, I rush down to the kitchen. The clock stands at 33 minutes past four. 16.33. Not yet meaningful, but it's a start. Over the next two rainy days, I continue my routine. With Jezza back, the wives are scrubbing and sweeping with renewed vigour. But Jezza himself is preoccupied with the more immediate attractions of Josie. My latest hobby has not commanded his attention at all. And as far as his interest in my spiritual development is concerned, it's been a long time since the kindest brown eyes I've ever seen have thrown even a cursory glance in my direction. For this, I am now grateful. Mist, patches of clearing, small brown birds, more drizzle, and then suddenly the bright orange flash, luminescent, Joyful. It always stays for about two minutes, and then it vanishes again. My three-day sightings, which I record using the communal pen taped to the kitchen counter, are now precisely 1633, 1645, and 1627. We're not allowed paper, of course, so I mark the numbers on my hand. When Maureen asks me what the numbers mean, I tell her that I am recording the appearances of the sparrows, what I hope she doesn't notice is that the numbers trouble me. No magical signifiers or prime numbers amongst them that could illuminate my own life path as I navigate my way. I am, however, running out of time. I can tell from the rosy sky this evening that the weather will clear tomorrow and I will need to act while the ground is dry. Like the blessing of the Lord himself, the next day dawns bright and fair. Outside, the sky is prettily blue, and a variety of green, vegetative hues sparkle encouragingly. To keep my restless self busy until the afternoon, I rearrange the jams and chutneys in the pantry, putting them in alphabetical order. Dorothy looks on approvingly. She believes my new hobby is doing me good. At 1600, I begin to pack my basket with slices of toast. Josie leans against the counter, watching me. When she asks, why am I feeding the birds with toast, not bread, I reply that it is better for their digestion. When she wants to come too, I tell her it is my meditation time alone with the Lord. And mercifully, she concedes defeat. Kitted out by 1616, I make my way down the path which glistens with interweaving snail trails, dropping the slices as I go. When I reach the first wall, I stop and pick up a stone, nicely heavy, but not too much so. 
After a couple of minutes of fumbling, I hurled the object with all my might, listening for the soft thud indicating its landing. Then I run back to the house, up the stairs, and resume my watch, heart thumping and binoculars in hand. It's four minutes after my return, at 16.24, not identical, not palindrome, and not even prime, but I don't give a hoot, but I see the neon flash. This time, it does not flare briefly and then disappear. Instead, it becomes an orange shape, which becomes a jacket, which becomes an attachment to the curious face of a postman peering through the bars of the steel gate. In his hand, I see that he is holding a slice of chestnut-coloured toast, fastened with rubber bands to a large stone. Any moment now, I know his expression will change as he sees that this strange and unexpected gift bears 11 numbers carefully scraped upon its surface. What I also know, and he doesn't yet, is that these numbers are, to me, the most significant in the whole world. The telephone number of my sister Sonia, who is coming very soon to save me. writer and psychotherapy student. She writes short stories and flash fiction and has completed her first novel. In 2017, she has had stories chosen for Liars League and longlisted for the Bath Flash Fiction Award. Annalee Wilson trained at Webber Douglas and works as an actor, singer, songwriter, musician and voiceover artist. Notable acting roles include Kate in The Taming of the Shrew for Marlowe Theatre Canterbury, and Garance in Les Enfants du Paradis at the Arcola. Annalie has produced three independent albums and won the UK National Rock the House Award for her music in 2014. Welcome to the stage, Annalie. today, prating and tutting, though they have no power here. The younger one is kind enough. She's from the West herself, and she asks after my Lizzie. She looks after the orphan girls across in Stanhope Street, she tells me, and she would be happy to have Lizzie among them to learn her her letters. And if she's an orphan, does that mean I'm already dead? She's no answer to that. I ask her if she's seen Lizzie today. Not yet, she says. They will visit the children's cells before they go, if time allows it. I hope to God they're feeding her all right, or else it's all for nothing in the end. Her bones like a bird when last I held her. The children used to get the same ration as the rest of us, but Matron says they've put a stop to that now, for they were cutting up and creating riots all over the city just to get in here. The Richmond Penitentiary 
is not the worst of the places you could be right now, in this year of our Lord, 1848. The people still pouring into Dublin, some of them falling down in the street, rags and bones. Fewer of them now, though. They say there are thousands lying dead in the country, with not a soul to bury them. But I think that cannot be true. Nellie said she had seen them thrown into a pit in Kilkenny, but she is a great one for tall tales. The other sister rattles away at her beads and will not catch my eye. I'm a bad character, so-called. Yet these two are here at my pleasure. I do not have to see them. And I wouldn't if it wasn't so lonely here. Anything to break that terrible silence. They do not own me or keep me. The judge is the one who sentenced me, not these black crows. I let down my hair just to annoy her, curling the ends of it around my hand. I can see I disgust her all right. She draws in her lip and says her rosary louder, hangs onto her beads for dear life, itching to cut off my hair like those poor bitches that go into them as penitents, shorn like ewes in the yard. The light is going now from the tiny window and even from the whitewashed walls. The sisters leave me, the hems of their habits trailing the stone floor. The young one gives me a card with a printed prayer. I pretend to read it, moving my lips. I wouldn't give them the satisfaction. They say they would pray for me and for Lizzie. The wardress brings round the bread and water, half frozen to the bottom of the tin cup. Says not a word to me. Silence is part of our sentence, they say, at least while we are here. Soon I will start working my way to my freedom, and in seven years, who knows where I may be. I'd send Lizzie my own bread, but it's not allowed, and it's a small enough piece anyway. It's more than I had before, though, and more than many have got now in this hellhole of a country. I pity them as are in here for the duration, and I pity even more the ones they send back out after a week or two. If they had any of them any sense, they'd break a window in Sackville Street and rob a fine shawl, or slice a gentleman after buying one. If I'd stayed just a common street walker, where would I be now? In the workhouse, or the Magdalene, and my Lizzie taken away for good? No. When I leave this place, it will be for the last time and I'll take her with me. To choose the right crime was no easy thing. Too small, and we'd be back out on the streets again in short order. And I know where that story ends, with Lizzie going walking herself in a few years. Too big a crime, and I might swing for it. And then the crows would fold their wings around her. The man that I cut was not a cruel man, but he was mean all the same to argue with a poor girl over a shilling. He won't argue again, I'll warrant you that. They lock the doors on us as soon as daylight goes. These winter nights are long, and it's fierce hard not to think back. I roll up in the blanket, and think instead of the day I will walk out through these walls and pay my dues, my sins washed away. I take out a hairpin, and add another scratch to the wall. In the dark, I run my fingers across the chalky surface to count them. 
ten days until the ship sails from the north wall. And Lizzie and I go to the ends of the earth. is The Retreat by Fiona Salter, and it will be read by Sarah Gain. Fiona Salter is a communications officer for a mental health charity in London, trying to save her own sanity on her commute by writing fiction in trains, tubes, and queues. She lives in Sussex with two diverting children. Sarah Gain is a brummy by birth, but has managed to escape without the accent. However, it is available on request. <laughs> Recent, as you will hear. Recent performances include multiple roles in a four-person tour of the Comedy of Errors, which I think has been nominated for an award. Yeah. So Nikki, who read, sorry, off book here, Nikki, who read the first story, directed it and also starred in it. Small round of applause. Huge round of applause. Covering Shakespeare to St. Nicholas in one fell swoop. Welcome to the stage, Sarah. La Retreat by Fiona Salter. I was put on this planet to bring happiness to others, basically. <laughs> Nora is dragging her case through the dinky French airport, following a wolf. It's gazing out from Kiki's fleecy back, above striding, lime green, leopard print legs. Kiki is the bringer of happiness. Nora felt she'd only been clinging on to adult life with her fingernails for a while now. Having exhausted another boss, another man, another landlord in quick succession, she's decided it's time for a little soul-searching. It turns out that what her friends termed Eccentric, or more kindly, kooky, didn't cut it in your forties. Rebalance your chakras. Find wellness in the French countryside, the ad had said. Chakras? Never mind. <laughs> Available all year round. That clinched it. A retreat sounded positive and focused. Something a proper adult would do, instead of holding up in a bed like a wounded animal. Are there many on the retreat? <laughs> she panted as she caught up with Kiki. She imagined sitting under a fig tree, sharing a bottle and confidences with other women, possibly men, maybe French, yoga honed, yet philosophical <laughs> men. <laughs> Just yell. <clears throat> you and Lukey, I should be charging thousands for me one-to-one -one consultation. <laughs> Nora hadn't expected such a strong Wolverhampton accent. <laughs> the ad had breathed wind chimes, not West Midlands. Just me. <laughs> this sounded like a bleat. I told you it's me purpose to bring happiness. 
could be one soul or hundred. <laughs> Kiki waves her hand airily. They leave the outskirts of a dilapidated port behind and drive deeper and deeper into the France Profonde until they reach a beaten up farmhouse. The dusty yard seems to reorganize itself and a cluster of sandy, hairy dogs start yapping into life. Freshen up and we'll concur in the wellness, Jodie, I would 6 p.m. <laughs> she indicates a low stone edifice dwarfed by a huge pile of broken concrete. It's time to dial down and find the new you, Moira. <laughs> We're still improving the studio. <laughs> the universe is providing. <laughs> Day one. Balancing your chakras. Nora's room has a lot on its mind. Above the carcophony of coral satin, the mantelpiece shouts, Be your best self! Home is where the heart is, counters the bedstead. <laughs> There's barely a moment to drop her case before it's time to address her chakras. I'm poised on the threshold of a new me, breathes Nora as she heads out. Kiki is sitting cross-legged in the freezing outhouse. It's an old building, maybe a milking parlour or an abattoir. Every beam of the creaking old structure sports a stickered message. Refresh and revitalize, it says. Chakra healing is a holistic, non-invasive, vibrational, energy-based system of healing, intones Kiki, replacing her Midland twang with a sing-song mid-Atlantic drawl. That is, it treats the old person as an integrated energy system. Y'all can Google it if you don't believe me. <laughs> she turns on an archaic French butane heater pulls down a screen and switches on a PowerPoint. Let's start with your brain. <clears throat> a ladybird illustration of the brain appears on screen. This is what started me on the path to wellness, the brain. I was living in Wolverhampton, or I was living the high life, let me tell you. Porsche 911 Carrera in the drive, or be with his own knowledge firm. A tangerine Porsche appears incongruously on the screen. <laughs> Paulie, that's me ex. You can keep your oddies in Barbados, your kitchen island small bone. I need to find my. <laughs> well, we've all been there, haven't we? <laughs> well, actually, uh, I haven't quite been there, ventures Nora. I don't even have a car, let alone, but this was lost as the chapter titled Separation and Finding My True Self materialises. The butane heater ticks outside the countryside, exhales in a mellow afternoon. Cicadas chirrup, a man whistles tunelessly. Nora glimpses the world outside through a swathe of cat satin over a deep-set window. She envies their freedom to move to whistle, not to listen. Back in the overheated wellness centre, Kiki has reached the apotheosis of her divorce. 
nor as stretches of stiff leg as the epic self-discovery of one half of Wolverhampton's power couple continues <laughs> unabated. She feels as edgy as a squirrel trapped in a train carriage, late for a meeting. <laughs> Kiki, she croaks, could we take a break? Kiki pouts, irritated by the interruption. That's just your self-sabotaging behaviour. <laughs> Where was I? The court? Yes. I said to the judge, I won't be silenced. <laughs> Nora pictures the beige furnishings of a Midlands courtroom. A wary judge and clerks. They feel sorry for everyone involved. <laughs> Hours pass. And Kiki's outline has dissolved, her voice disembodied. Nora wonders if she's hallucinating. But no, it has got dark. At last, it's back to the farmhouse. There, a mute to elderly man on a sofa is strewn under the half-buried, sandy, hairy dogs who decorated the yard. An 80-year-old version of Kiki is serving up Finder's crispy pancakes, <laughs> while BBC Midlands blares from an enormous TV screen. It's Wolverhampton in Cinemascope. We have a spot of colon trouble, <laughs> offers Kiki brightly. Who could she mean? The dogs? <sighs> no, it turns out to be Kiki Maman. Mumsy. <laughs> it's not a conversation she wants to have, but at least it's not Kiki's colon. It started with a GP tummy in 2012 after the divorce. <clears throat> Mumsy mouths the last word. Nora knows it will be a long meal. <laughs> Here it seems troubles are shared. A bowel, a divorce, a realisation, or are one, and all must be divulged, not a detail spared. Nora's troubles, colonic or otherwise, remain unexplored. Day two, and it's Christology, which starts with some sketchy stuff about Incas, but leads inexorably to Kiki's remarkable gem-fueled powers. Drifting off is not an option. Various verbal tugs prevent this. Are you with me? You get it? <laughs> Nora wonders if Oetvontuz has a joke shop and if it sells those glasses with staring eyes painted on. <laughs> One monosyllable and the purling stream of words that fills the room and threatens to engulf her jolts Nora upright. The word is fast. <clears throat> it has been decreed that she must fast to focus in clearer meridians. Didn't she pay for meals? <laughs> it will help to flush toxins, both mental and colonic, from her damaged, sceptical, self-sabotaging body. I'll be fasting with you, adds Kiki piously. It gives me a feeling of lightness and spirituality. As they trudge out of the wellness centre, an old man is ambling past, a dog trotting at his heels. Whoa, Claude, hold up! Kiki cries. He looks alarmed, hunches down into his collar and scuffles on. <laughs> well, someone's in a hurry. Kiki, eyes narrowing. 
Day three, dancing your dog into the light. It's early. In the ashy light, the toads are croaking loudly in the pond. Nora wonders if they're edible. <laughs> she hasn't slept. The satin quilt was hot and gave off nylon sparks, plus she's already hungry. It's quite a lot of darkness for Nora to dance today. Some is directed towards herself for choosing this retreat. Some towards ex-lover and ex-boss, but most, it has to be said, is directed towards Kiki. <laughs> She's sitting cross-legged in silence as she enters the grimy wellness centre. Without opening her eyes, she indicates a cushion. It has a picture of a pug on it. <laughs> Dance like no one's watching, says the pug. <laughs> but the apostrophe's missing. <laughs> Punctuate like no one's reading. <laughs> Says a voice in Laura's self-sabotaging head. <laughs> Kiki is squinting at a pile of plastic wallets, each illustrating what look like solo ambulatory Kama Sutra. <clears throat> Kiki brings up her hand like a dog begging and begins high-stepping round the room. This is a dreadful prospect for Nora, deprived of alcohol, darkness or cover, just exposed as an uncoordinated prancer. Faster! Faster! shouts Kiki. The words on the wall blur as Nora, half-crazed with hunger and butane flames, were about, live like no one, heal, restore, laugh, best, dream, love, love. How did I end up here, trapped in the middle of nowhere, miles from a bus or train, an unwilling apostle in a personality cult? Why can't I leave? And suddenly, Nora is seven years old, unable to put up her hand to ask the maths teacher if she can be excused. We know how that ended. <laughs> Sodden woolly tights and a shameful plastic bag. <laughs> the thought makes her splutter. Kiki stops mid-prance and the eyes swivel. You think it's funny? That's your dark side trying to sabotage the alien process. She thrusts her face close. That's a real problem for you, isn't it? Don't think I can't see, and I can't see the nasty, cynical one. We need to beat her down. Who's the boss, eh? The lazy Nora who doesn't want to cleanse her chakras or dance the darkness? Hmm? The one who can't listen to the lessons from someone who knows what's best for her? Who's the boss? Who's the boss? She crows. You are? <sighs> Triumph glints in her eye. She thrusts her face close. No, you are the boss of lazy Nora who can't dance or go a few hours without checking her phone or stuffing her face. Are those crumbs around your mouth? <laughs> You've been eating. What have you eaten, Nora squeaks? Am I hypoglycemic? She says, turning around. Hypo! was the first I've heard of it, and I should know. I've had a complete medical history from the whole family. Not to mention the daily news flash from Koran Central in there. <laughs> she indicates the 
farmhouse kitchen. <clears throat> a cloud passes Kiki's face. She's gone too far. <laughs> but it's too late. Silence. Dust sparkles. A blade of light illuminates the restored heel sign and the crack running the length of the wall. I'm going to put it down to your toxins, she sniffs. <laughs> it's not toxins! I think you'll find Nora has the pub cushion in her hand and she is wringing the life out of it. It's you, Kiki! I'm tired of satin, stupid messages everywhere and hearing about divorces and Porsches and bowels. No one asks about my bowels or anything for that matter. And you and... Anything else? <laughs> Arms crossed. No one's has an apostrophe in it. <laughs> <laughs> she looks down at the offending pug. And so does your. <laughs> I see. You must be glad now you got that off your chest. We welcomed you into our own. And this is what we get. Nora feels as if she's kicked a puppy. There's only one thing to do. At dawn, a fairy tale mist hangs over the pond in its sleeping toads. A woman emerges. She swears as a door creaks noisily behind her. Eight kilometres away in a sleepy haute ventouse, a man is rattling up the shutters on his dusty little bar to back, sluicing fag ends from the pavement. Her face is sheened with sweat when she arrives her suitcase and lower legs flowery with dust. Three workers stand silently over coffees and tiny brandies. They view her sans greeting, sans interest. The proprietor lifts his chin in question, in mild contempt, but without dislodging a cigarette in the corner of his mouth. Vivian. <laughs> and cafe? He plonks down a tiny cup of tar, coffee so potent it practically growls, and goes back to reading Noir Atlantique. Silence. No words. No analysis. She checks the walls. I do not ask her to be her best self. <laughs> she sips it in silence. Scolding, rich, bitter and dissolute the lifeblood of a tired woman, and resolutely unimprovable. Thank you, Sarah. I feel my chakras are more balanced. <laughs> that was our last story of the first half, so now we encourage you to go and drink, be merry, buy anthologies, which are merely five pounds. Uh, they're all there by the bar. Um, for half an hour. Uh, and then return to hear more fantastic stories. Thank you. Welcome back to the second half of Women and Girls. And uh, the what has come to be a notorious, infamous, frankly terrifying <laughs> Liars Lee book quiz. Woo! Do you have a question? 
Liam, my glamorous assistant, will be demonstrating the books for you. And uh, he's also very kindly taken on the burden of writing the questions because his knowledge of women's literature is unparalleled. <laughs> I, I am tonight's token male. <laughs> Patronising, please, everybody. We have three books to win. Uh, we have uh, Catherine Flatt's Separate Lives, a novel of coupledom, parenthood, being single, infidelity, betrayal, <laughs> and all the bits in between. Uh, we also have the miniaturist, uh, the literary sensation of the year, says the Sunday Times. I don't know which year. Uh, last year. Last year, sorry, very recent. Uh, Jesse Burton. Uh, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And we also have a collection of short stories by somebody who is sitting in the audience. We she will sign it if you ask very nicely. And, and you just ask very, very nicely. It will work. Um, this is auto-erotica. Okay, at the back. <laughs> by Stacia St. Owens. It is a, an award-winning collection of 13 stories set in L.A., the darker, seamier side. It has won the... Uh, it was shortlisted for the Saroyan... Saroyan? International Prize in Writing. And finalist for the Hollywood Book Pipeline Award and winner of the Tarte First Fiction Award. You can tell I'm slightly biased on this one. But anyway, um, it, you may choose whichever book you wish to win, assuming you get the answers right. Now, um, we, I haven't even prepared the call-out for this. So oh, I have. Call out. Go on, then. Sisters! Yes. <laughs> so this is because we can't, we can't see you. Yeah, yeah. So put your the hands in the air. The lights are blinding us, so if you know the answer, please stick a hand in the air, wave it around like you just don't do, do it militantly. And shout, sisters! Yeah, you can do the... Yeah, you can do that as well. Um, yeah, so can we have a little go? Sisters! <laughs> It's a nice experience. Right, I'm peering into the darkness. Now, some of these are more challenging, and some of them we're basically giving the books away. Uh, so it will be up to you to see which ones uh, win. Hailed as one of the key texts of the women's movement of the 1960s, this study of a divorced single mother's search for personal and political identity remains a defiant, ambitious tour de force. Which book by Doris Lessing is this? Sisters. Oh, yes. The Golden Notebook. It is. Well done. You know your feminist text. Which book would you like? The miniaturist. Lovely. Okay. I'm going to lead with a slightly harder question than Liam wrote. That's fair enough. Just to you know, challenge you a little. I'm doing it. Whose second novel 
published in 2002, before she had won the Granta Best British Young Novelist twice in a row, was the Autograph Man. Sadie Smith. Oh, 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 oh. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> Sisters, and then... Sadie Smith. Sadie Smith. Whoa. Well done. <laughs> Autoerotica, please. Yeah, of course. Who wouldn't? And our last question, unless nobody gets it, of course, and then we'll just keep on asking questions until we can give this one the book away. Which Angela Carter novel features the aerialist Sophie Feathers? Oh, yes, over there. It is! Well done! That's open mail winner. And you get Catherine Flett's separate lives. Is Autoerotica for sale anywhere, Stacia? Amazon. So all those people who didn't win it, Amazon. <laughs> and uh, we've, we've sold two of these already, so they're rounding out rapidly. But um, our publishing partners, Arachne Press, uh, who are both award-winning, and uh, one of their books was nominated for the Carnegie Medal, which is a really prestigious children's thing, they do uh, young adult fiction, they do horror, fantasy, literary fiction, poetry, and they do Liars League anthologies. So if you're very disappointed at not having won a book, we are practically giving these away for a fiver, because it is Arachne Press's fifth birthday this year. Uh, if you would like one, come and see me or Liam, and we will take your money and give you something that's worth so much more. Um, <laughs> Yeah, of course you will. Of course you will. We're signing balls. <laughs> okay, so back to the stories. Our fourth story of the night, our first off the interval, is Summer Season by Sally Sison, read by Charlotte Worthing. Sally Sison is based in northwest England. Her short fiction has been listed for competitions, including the Manchester Fiction Prize the Bath Short Story Award, and the London Magazine Short Story Competition, and has been published online in the Manchester Review. Charlotte Worthing trained at the Oxford School of Drama. Her theatre work includes roles at Arcola Theatre, Southwark Playhouse, The Bush, and Theatre 503, as well as touring productions. Radio work includes BBC drama series Chain Gang, The Private Patient, and Road to St David's, in which she was typecast as a ten-year-old Welsh boy. <laughs> Welcome to the stage, Charlotte Worthing. Summer Season by Sally Sison. She tells him not to, but he even does it when they are fucking, which is horrible. The voices coming out of the closet, from up on the ceiling, from under the bed. He is looming over her with a letterbox grin and the voices are oozing out from between his teeth. She knees him in the ribs and he drops back with a gasp. What's the matter with you, he says. Can't you take a joke? His voice, his ordinary voice, is flat and nasal. 
Essex or thereabouts, but at least his lips are moving. He rolls over and reaches for his cigarettes. He doesn't offer them to her, so she snatches the packet out of his hand. They lie, side by side, without speaking, and the twin streams of smoke spiral upwards like tendrils without touching. She says, I just want something real. She has heard people say this in films where it sounded profound. <laughs> the boys at school would never get it. But he nods as if he understands and feeds the butt of his cigarette into the mouth of a beer bottle. The butt hits the dregs with a hiss. Later, when he lifts the bottle to his lips and gags on the ashy soup, she will almost piss herself laughing. <laughs> She's not even sure why her little sister wanted to see the show in the first place. Only that it's the summer holidays and there's nothing else to do. Going by the posters, it looked irredeemably naff. Primitive, almost. A relic from the world of those old TV clips with blacked up faces and handsy milkmen. Still, here they are, in a swelter of restless kids and mums, the barnyard stink of unwashed feet and stressed maternal armpits, salted breath and baby wipes. Every round of applause is just one whoop of air, one pained bleat short of hysteria. Afterwards, her little sister wants more, more, more. She wants to meet the funny man with his funny doll. They don't have to wait long. He exits the stage door, still holding the dummy in his arms. His eyes slide over her body as her little sister coos and strokes the dummy's face. And she feels like ice cream melting. There is another show in the evening, for grown-ups only, for the hens and the stags who are out roaring along the promenade. The audience is drunk and sparse, and the jokes are crap. She is on her own this time, with her feet on the back of the chair in front. The dummy wears a bikini and a Union Jack hijab. <laughs> At the stage door, she sees him before he sees her. Instead of carrying out the dummy like he did before, he has stuffed it into a holdall. The navy blue nylon taut with spastic limbs. All he needs to do now is dispose of the body. She steps forward, a willing accomplice. I remember you, he says. I can't stay, she says, although he hasn't asked. He is 34 and has lines around his eyes. She traces them with a fingertip and calls him old man until he smacks her hand away. What's the matter with you, she says, as she helps herself to another cigarette. Can't you take a joke? They're in his hotel. It's the shabbiest of all the shabby places along the front, which means there's an ashtray on the bedside table, cut glass and heavy as a rock. He has gear, just like she knew he would. When he hesitates to pass her the rolled-up tenor, she tells him she's done it before, and she likes it, the spangle in her head. One of these statements will turn out to be true. She tilts her chin and sweeps her hair over so that her best side is caught in profile. But in the circle of her pocket mirror, she is monstrous, boggle-eyed, her nostrils twinned black tunnels. She is 17, and he is 34. They have found each other at an intersection, a moment of perfect equation. 
If 2x equals y and x plus y equals 51, then solve for x. She wants to know what he was doing when he was the age she is now, in the year she was born. The way he tells it makes it sound as if he's been doing pretty much the same thing his entire life. Cans of cider in the precinct, dirty puppet shows to make his mates laugh, watching schoolgirls on the bus. She says, so you like him young? He says, you look 25 at least. She knows that she does not. Look after your little sister, her mother says. And during the day, that's exactly what she does. They play crazy golf together and drink ice slushies that turn their tongues blue and argue less than either of them might have expected. She looks after her little sister from 8 o'clock in the morning right the way through until 6 o'clock in the evening when they dawdle back home. Lying on her bed with the curtains drawn, sun drunk and sand sore, waiting for her mother to get back from work while her little sister crushes ants against the front step. Then she goes out alone to sit in the dark, watching his lips barely moving. For the final act, he waits until he has three fingers inside her. And this time, the voice is her voice. And she is frantic and twisting and scrambling up off the bed, yelling, fuck you, fuck you. She can't find her knickers, her favourite pair, lime green lace with a pink ribbon trim. Commando it is then. She's shrugging on her dress and he's watching her from the bed with his mouth open. The whole door is by the closet and she aims a hefty kick at it as she runs past. He'll have something to say about that all right. But the only voice she is listening to now is the one in her head saying, should have worn your Nikes, girlfriend. She snatches up her shoes by the ankle straps and gallops down the stairs. Out on the street, she slams headlong into a hen party, a consternation of fairy godmothers with LED wands. They pick her up and dust her down. They press strawberry daiquiri kisses to her eyelids and feed her handbags with coins until its satin belly creaks before magicking her in a taxi. In the morning, her toes are bruised and there is glitter on the pillow. Knuckle down, they'll tell her, when she goes back to school. She's heard this before, of course, but now she thinks she understands what she needs to do, even if knuckling down sounds unattractively simian. Simian. This is a word she has learnt only recently. There are other new words to go with it, words like lupine and viperin and salachian. She remembers his smile, his terrible teeth. She thinks of herself as the one that got away, darting quicksilver between closing jaws. Zoology, she wonders. She could dare for York, Durham, Edinburgh even. She searches eBay for her lime green knickers 20 times a day at first, then five times a day, and then not at all. Unexpectedly, her mother gave her 50 pounds for minding her little sister all summer, so she blew the lot on a set of fancy new underwear. The knickers, like the bra, are ivory silk with just the tiniest hint of lace, and they are her favorites now. She writes a story double space in a serious font. Her English teacher tells her to stay behind after the bell. He perches on the edge of her desk 
and asks her if everything is all right. She drags her gaze away from his too close, bunched-up crotch, looks up into his face to where his features are arranged into a careful mask of concern, and says, I just wanted to write something real. I see, he says, even though she knows that he does not. He cannot think what else to say to her. Whatever. All this stuff seems to matter less and less already. She is knuckling down. She is moving on up. She is speeding further and further and faster and faster away from this place and everyone in it. She is accelerating like a star. Limbo by Susan Smith, read by Jennifer Aries. Susan Smith was born in Scotland and is a recent convert to writing, following many years working in the pharmaceutical industry. An MA graduate in creative writing from Manchester Metropolitan University, she is working on her first novel, The Brazen Calyx. Susan lives in Macclesfield. Having recently completed filming on Sky Atlantic's The Tunnel, with her most recent role as Mary Cox in Ripper Street, Jennifer Aries has enjoyed some great jobs in popular TV shows. She enjoys collaboration and new writing and is currently in post-production for her own co-written short film, Forever Young. Please welcome Jennifer. Limbo, Sue Smith. 5.07, a rhombus of acid yellow on the carpet. She watches the borders concentrating on the shapes lying just beyond the light and names them. Shoe, Bush, Bockley. If she thinks hard enough, these shadow objects twist into new shapes, deform, but a sense of responsibility holds her back. Why hurt your... Five fifty-nine. Digits tumble. <coughs> she holds her breath. And only lets the air hiss out when the hour changes to six. The radio explodes into noise. Radio five live, his choice. And Nick moves next to her in the bed. No touching, though. The middle of the bed is unrumpled a pristine cotton barrier. He blinks awake like a light bulb sparks into incandescence. She envies that ability to switch from here to there in a heartbeat, wishes she could switch herself off. In the time it takes for that notion to fight through her head, he has sat up and swung his legs to the floor. She would take that long. Thoughts get trapped inside her skull and can't escape. They flutter against her eyeballs and peck at Nick comes out of the bathroom, bringing an aroma of sodden lemons, that shower gel his mother bought him for Christmas. She hates his citrus optimism. 
The rasp of towel against skin as he drives his body, then a pause while he attends to his cock and scrotum. A labour of love wasted on a glands. He dabs at his genitals and runs the towel up and down his arse crack as if swiping a credit card. <laughs> she used to watch with a leer, enjoying the sight, asking him to bend over and cackle. Now she imagines skin slowing onto the floor with every stroke. She thinks that she detests his enthusiasm, can't be sure. Emotions are balloons. They collapse into nothing when pricked. She cannot watch anymore. It's unspoken, this revulsion. Nick would be amazed, truly shocked at the depth of feeling over something so... Seven fifteen. He crouches beside the bed and speaks to her. Tired, she groans, and it seems to satisfy. Don't forget your appointment at half past ten. Mm. He pats her once, twice, three times, but does not touch her skin. Not allowed. Only the duvet that drapes over her cheek and hair. A safe zone of one inch depth. I'll get the kids up. It isn't my appointment at half ten. You agreed a time and a date with the doctor, not me. I was just in the same room, talking and talking and talking solves nothing. Don't you know that by now, you stupid... 8.13, the front door slams and footsteps drain away. A chitter-chatter of voices then Nothing. Only Dinah and Tom going to school. Cutting it fine for the bus might miss it. She smiles at the idea of this. No chance. That type of misfortune happens to other children. Her two are gilded. They slide through life with no scuff marks. Already lottery winners. And like the other one, not him, not her Sam, is on pace one time. Sometimes imperfections are hidden. She ponders this turns it upside down and scratches at the base. A line of white would distinguish spelter from brass. Authenticity of perception. Decides that she doesn't care about the ills of others, visible or invisible, and closes her eyes for her. 9.29. The radio phoning is about wolf whistles. One caller, a woman, says they're a compliment and they should be received as such. The woman speaks with a refined voice, but there is a rasp redolent of unfiltered cigarettes. A male caller agrees and calls it political correctness gone mad. Bingo. She wonders what a wolf whistle means. Is it different if you're the whistler or the whistlee? We whistle at dogs, train them to obey. Do dogs enjoy it? A young woman tries to make a point, and the argument flares again. Voices clamber over each other, jabbing heels into cheeks, cracking teeth. The presenter closes the discussion smoothly, allowing the combatants to retire the field with honour. The next guest is a lawyer campaigning for improved driving legislation. Train whistles. Danger, keep away. Do not approach for... Ten fourteen. 
a cascade of letters through the door. The postman whistles as he walks away. She tried to nail the letterbox shut last week, but Nick found out. He pulled out the nails and told her it was crazy. She didn't try to explain, just watched his mouth as he spoke. He hurt too, the tightness of his lips was a betrayal, but hid it better. A single entry in the debit column of his narrow accountant's soul. Assets equal liabilities plus equity. A balancing of all the good they possess over one little death. She asked if she would die if she swallowed the nails. Each one over an inch long would leave a pretty trail of perforation in her guts. An x-ray for the family album. Would that make it all better? Nick took the nails from her and locked them in his. Eleven twenty-three. A doorbell rings. Not the chime of a real bell, but an electronic pastiche. Could be next door, they have the same model. Again, twice in quick succession, there is a hint of irritation in the finger press, an anger in the abruption of noise. They'll go away, they always do. A voice called her name, her first name, not Mrs. So-and-so. How presumptuous, I don't even know you. Are you in there? You missed your appointment, I phoned earlier. <laughs> the absurdity makes her want to laugh, her lungs hollow. She threw the mobile phone away the day it happened. Hello? Does the caller expect a response? Really? Yeah. She does. Poor cow. You're really not up to this job, are you? Empathy will suck you dry and spit out the... 13.42. Her bladder is full and presses against her abdomen. She hasn't moved for 12 hours. Precisely. To the minute. She noted the time when she woke and turned over, eyes wide in the dark. It will ache to move after so long in one position. Muscles will complain and joints will pop. This is how bed sores are formed. She'd like a bed sore, an ulcerous badge of honour. She could show it to friends and colleagues, pull down the waistband of her jeans and say, look, you can poke your finger inside right up to the first joint. Go on, try it. She doesn't have any friends and colleagues. Not anymore, not since. Fourteen twelve. It hurts now. Her bladder hurts. Does she just let go? She doesn't want to move. It seems sinful to disrupt the white sheets and duvet, the strip of unoccupied or unoccupied bed guarding her back. A no man's land. A damaged space filled with shell craters. They're still digging bond fragments from the soil of Passchendaele over a hundred years later. No mention of bodies. Those had long since broken into a million trillion atoms and mingled with the land. Some things can't be separated. Traumas can join. A hybrid of woe takes the water and 14.39. Decision time. Something must give. Flip a coin. What'll it be? Stay in bed or get up. 
If she gets up, then a different future. She would pee in the toilet and enjoy the relief and feel surprised at the enjoyment of a trivial act. Then a shower. Tea tree oil shower gel to kill the contamination. The poison lingering after another sleepless night. Get dressed. Something casual. Jeans and a t-shirt. Urban camouflage. Go downstairs, tidy the kitchen, stack the breakfast plates in the dishwasher, plan dinner. Vodka tonic reward, about three-ish for being a good little woman. A trooper. Peel veg. Peel potatoes. Another liquid reward because the first one slipped down way too easily. Put a towel wash on. Set the table. Arrange a smile for school home time. And hold it so that the pain cannot escape. Choices. Choices. Which is the easiest? Not this. Not this indeterminate purgatory. She climbs out of bed. In the wardrobe mirror, her body is pale and sun-starved. The bruise died weeks ago. The long black and blue yellow sash running from right shoulder to left hip. But injury lingers beneath the surface. The tomography of guilt taste of airbag and a, a sudden sense of something being irrevocably wrong in the world. She pinches her left breast until the nail breaks the skin and relief comes. And she can follow the script for the rest of the day. By five o'clock, pots bubble on the hob and the smell of cooking meat fills the kitchen. Kids are doing their homework, bless. She drinks from her glass, a long pull. But when she holds her hand up to the daylight spilling through the windows, bones shine dark through the translucent flesh. is an Edinburgh writer who attended the school that inspired Muriel Sparks, the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. She has had over 30 short stories published in literary magazines and anthologies and is currently editing her first novel. She is thrilled to be a Liars League newbie. Kelly Wolfe, who is making her debut tonight, is an American poet, performer, journalist and activist. She performs as Coco Millet with the London Poetry Brothel, and she also founded the Little Burst Poetry Collective, produces and hosts the Propaganda Poetry radio series, and is poet in residence at Cabaret Caramel, where she curates monthly events. Please welcome Kelly. Walk a Mile in My Shoes by Olga Voigt. Abby was feeling meh. There was no particular reason. 
or rather there were lots of little reasons which it all stuck together to create a sensation of overwhelming madness. She had stayed up too late playing the jeweled blitz and woken feeling slightly headachy. The milk in the fridge had gone sour. She was pretty sure Simon wasn't the one. It was raining. She'd waited to buy the blue jumpsuit in the sale and now they only had it in a size 10. She hadn't won the lottery again. <laughs> and it really irritated her, the way the superheroes cluttered up the coffee shop. It had been such a lovely little independent but now its character had changed completely and everyone was too afraid of the superheroes to complain. She would have never gone in if the milk hadn't been sour. She couldn't concentrate on reading the newspaper because of the racket Hellboy was making after Green Lantern turned his muffin rock solid for a laugh. Spider-Man was shinning up the walls to avoid an arm wrestling competition with Wolverine. <laughs> Iron Man was trying to cover up the rip he had just made in the upholstery, and the till was on the blink because Magneto had stood too close to it. <laughs> no superheroes, noted Abby. They obviously had more sense. She closed her eyes and tried to breathe deeply. Hey, girlfriend came a soft, concerned voice. What's the matter? Abby opened her eyes. A man had slipped into the seat on the other side of the table. A man wearing a skin-tight violet costume with a big S on it. The S was very different from the angular shield of Superman. It was delicately curving with small flowers loping out of it. Abby had never seen the man before. Who are you? She demanded. I'm Captain Simpatico, not the newcomer. I feel your pain. What are you talking about? You have no idea who I am. The stranger gave a gentle smile. That doesn't matter. I'm a superhero, and that's my superpower. Like I said, I'm Captain Simpatico. Shouldn't that be Capitano Simpatico? said Abby acidly. <laughs> oh dear. The superhero leaned across the table and took her hand. PMS? <laughs> a lot of women get irritable and irrational when it's their time of the month. <laughs> Abby pulled her hand away. No, it's not PMS, she snapped. Call yourself a superhero? You're a patronizing, chauvinist wanker. <laughs> he nodded. I can understand why you say that. <laughs> can you really? Sarcasm, he said. You poor baby, lashing out at those around you because of your own unhappiness. And why am I unhappy, she said. Because you and your idiot mates have taken over my local coffee shop, and I can't get peace to drink my chai latte and read the newspaper. 
I can relate to that. <laughs> Goodness, you can't get peace to drink your chai latte and read the newspaper either? No, I've, I've already drunk my chai latte and read the paper. I'm identifying with you. Not very successfully if you think I have PMS when I'm just feeling mad. Captain Simpatico leaned further across the table towards her. Oh, don't say just feeling mad. Feeling mad can be a debilitating, soul-sapping experience. I've been there. <laughs> I know what you're going through. Abby, who was holding her teaspoon, created a passable Yuri Geller bend in it. You haven't the faintest idea, she said. Again, the gentle smile. Oh, but I do. Everything resonates with me. It's my superpower. <laughs> Abby tried to straighten out the teaspoon. Well, you know what they say. You can never really understand someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. So true, sighed Captain Simpatico. So very true. Okay, then. Okay, then what? Walk a mile in my shoes. <laughs> Captain Simpatico blinked. Yeah, said Abby. I knew you weren't able to understand me. I am, protested Captain Simpatico. Glanced down at her feet. A bit small, but I'm sure I'll manage a mile. Abby waved a finger at him. These are my trainers. I sit a mile in my shoes. Come along. Fifteen minutes later, they emerged from Abby's flat. Captain Simpatico clinging to the railings as he teetered on three-inch heels. How do you walk in these, he wailed. <laughs> After a mile, you'll know. <laughs> but they're crushing my toes. They're wrecking my calf muscles. They're putting my back out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's what they do, said Abby. You're feeling my pain. Excellent. Captain Simpatico lurched from lamppost to lamppost, leaning against them, whimpering. Are we nearly finished? <laughs> Fifty yards, said Abby. We barely begun. The right heel twisted under him and he fell over, ripping his violet tights and embedding gravel in his knees. Abby rushed over to help him up, but he lost his footing again and pitched in the opposite direction, crashing on his elbows. I'll get some decemia, he shrieked. <laughs> no, just scabs, said Abby. Keep going. We're nearly at the end of the street. <laughs> he clung to a gatepost. I'm not staying on these death trap pavements. 
I need to walk on grass. <laughs> That's really not going to help, said Adam. Grass, he insisted. She helped him across to the park where he, the tapered heels immediately sank into the turf, trapping him. You're aerating the soil, which I'm sure is environmentally beneficial, she said. But it takes up much more energy to walk that way, and you don't seem like you have a lot to spare. He was sniveling now, as the blood from his grays, knees, and elbows soaked into his costume. But he was determined to stay on grass. As he tried to step forward, one heel lifted while the other remained firmly embedded, and he tipped forward into a holly bush. <laughs> Abby retrieved the shoe which had been stuck. Here you are, she said. You can lean on me while you put your foot back in. Put my foot back in, he shrieked. Are you crazy? You don't know whether I'm crazy or not? Are you losing your superpowers? <laughs> <laughs> With difficulty, Captain Simpatico tugged off the other shoe and flung it to the ground. Barefoot, he stumbled back into the direction of the coffee shop. Abby, carrying the discarded shoes, followed him. His arrival was met with a horrified silence. The superheroes stared at their bloodied and tattered colleague. Who did this to you? gasped Aquaman. Captain Simpatico pointed a shaking finger at Abby. <laughs> hey guys, she said and waved. Look at his feet, whispered Daredevil. They all looked at Captain Simpatico's bleeding and blistered feet, the blackened nails hanging off. <coughs> Whatever she's using, it's worse than kryptonite, quavered Superman. And I'm not staying around to find out what it is. In a series of blurs and the occasional flash of fire and ice, the superheroes all disappeared. Another chai latte, said Abby to the barista. I'll have a chai latte as well, said a voice from behind her. Me too. And one for me. Abby turned to see Batgirl, Supergirl, and Wonder Woman. Nice work, growled Batgirl. Nice shoes, said Supergirl. <laughs> For restoring the ambience of this independent coffee shop, said Wonder Woman, we are now going to induct you into the League of Superheroines. But I'm just ordinary, said Abby. Ordinary, yet deeply fab, said Wonder Woman. And that is how Abby vanquished the mansplaining of Captain Simpatico and became chai latte in a paper 
ordinary, yet deeply fab girl. <laughs> Twitter, we're at Liars League. Uh, we have a Facebook page, we've got a group, we've got websites, we have videos, we've got like 400 videos of so many fantastic stories, it will take you lifetimes to fully appreciate them, uh, in a good way. And um, we also have a, a bar with barmen <laughs> and, and women uh, standing there just waiting to serve you some fantastic drinks. Uh, so... Go ahead, put your hands together, and please thank all the wonderful actors and authors. And hey, you guys too, you've been great. Thank you. 